When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Today on the podcast, we have Monica Tan. She's here to talk about her new book, Stranger Country. In 2016, Monica left her plum job at The Guardian to travel around Australia for six months. She covered some 30,000 kilometres alone, sleeping in a tent every night. Monica's a Chinese-Australian woman, and it was going to China that made her reflect on the country of her birth, Australia. She really wanted to understand Indigenous culture more and see how it could relate to her belonging and identity. It's such a pleasure to have Monica on the podcast. Here's Monica. It's my great pleasure to have Monica Tan here with us. We're in the studio in Sydney at Osterio. Um, surrounded by velvet couches and and things like that, and we're we've got our coffee and we're ready to go. We're here to talk about Monica's first book, Stranger Country, and it's a nonfiction book about her thirty thousand kilometer drive exploration around Australia. So, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, you make a joke in the book about a woman that was desperate to move back to a town because she couldn't find a good coffee. And I'm wondering, I feel like a lot of Australians would relate to that. On this journey, what was one of the things you missed most? Was it coffee or something as simple as that? Um, you know, the first few months of my trip was so exhilarating and it was so exciting. Um, and I, I was just, it was so full of pleasure. I was driving and hiking and bird spotting and fishing and having sort of wonderful long meandering conversations with people and waking up with sunrises and going to sleep you know early in the evening and and um yeah most of the trip I would say definitely the first half of the trip um it was it was nothing but but sort of pleasure uh, I would say the second half of the trip was when I started to get a bit tired and I started to feel a little bit homesick and yeah I did I did start to miss some of the creature comforts because you know I was sleeping in a tent most nights and I did miss um being able to watch a stupid YouTube video at 2am if I felt like it <laughs> I miss I miss being in a house and not having to bat away flies all the time and um be scratchy and uncomfortable and you know have you know, I, I was starting to get sick of all the dirty sort of campsite toilets I was I was having to use or um yeah, I think there so there were things I I definitely missed. Um and by the time 
the six-month mark came around, I, I was happy to go back home. Yeah. And was it always a six-month time period that you had in mind? And I guess let's backtrack for everyone too and talk about what were you doing in those years before you had this epiphany? Yeah, I think it is important to sort of set the context and and realise that I was the person least likely to embark on a six-month road trip around Australia. Um, I I only got my full licence a few months <laughs> before leaving on the trip. Um, you know, I was a real city girl and I loved, when I was younger, I was, I loved partying. I loved big cities like New York and um, Beijing and, uh, you know, London. I'd, I'd lived in London for a little bit. I wasn't a person who necessarily was into you know, nature or, you know, even culture and history and language. And that came a bit later in life when I was in my late 20s and I, I lived in China and I did, I did that thing that a lot of Australians who, whose, you know, heritage is from overseas, which is most of us, um, I, I went back to my so-called motherland and, and it was in China that I, that sort of, that journey started. And, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, when I went on this trip, I was a very different person to the kind of the, the person that I'd been even just a few years prior. And yeah, I, I, six months was sounded like a good amount of time, not it, it's a sort of a round number, half a year. <laughs> and when I, yeah, when I went on the trip, um, when I was traveling, I, I didn't have very firm plans. I wasn't very highly structured, but six months was the sort of period that I, I wanted to be away for. And it was, it was the right amount of time. What was the reasoning behind taking the route you took and maybe explain to us a little bit? Because um, we have a lot of listeners in America and other places, like that shape of Australia we know. How did you wind your way around it? You know, for those of your listeners who are overseas, but even the, I would say even a lot of Australians, um, a lot of us, we haven't travelled Australia that much and we don't actually have a, a sense of just how vast the landscape is or just how vast this continent is. Um, and like I, I always remember a statistic from when I was young. I think it's something like 32 Germanys can fit in the size of Australia. So, you know, it's a it's a massive continent. And as I said, I wasn't very structured, but over the months, sort of half a year prior to me leaving, um, or, you know, yeah, it was about half a year when I started to formulate going on this trip, I would just collect bits and pieces. I would hear stories, um, bits of history that I found really fascinating, and I would mark it on a Google map and go, okay, that's that sounds really cool. Um, why don't I go see what I can find there? Um, I would meet people. I, you know, I was a journalist at The Guardian, so that that sort of meant that I, I was meeting lots of interesting people from all around Australia all the time and, and people who I had a sort of connection to or connection with, I would um, mark them down. Again, a, a little sort of marker on a Google map, you know, here's here's where Tyson Morrowind is, on, literally on the other side of the continent in the Pilbara. I have no idea what the Pilbara, Pilbara is like, but boop, there's a little marker for him too. And and then I would, um, the last sort of um, category was just really iconic, as you said, um, incredibly beautiful places like Uluru or Kakadu. 
Um, these were, uh, you know, these, these are places that you shouldn't miss <laughs> if you're traveling around Australia. These are places that, um, you know, define our image to the over, you know, to um, the to overseas people. But so many of us haven't actually been to these places. One of the interesting points that keeps coming up in the book is this idea of will we ever be able to understand country as a non-Indigenous person? And it feels like it was one of the one of the things you were craving to have this experience in Australia of our country. From the beginning to now, how has your um how has your relationship to the land changed? And is that a part of your everyday life, acknowledging kind of where you are in a, at a certain time and place? I think that's a really uh, interesting point you bring up because, yeah, I definitely went in there with, um, I, I think, only a very limited understanding of what this concept called country meant. At that point, I had worked at The Guardian for a couple of years and I'd interviewed lots of different kind, different Indigenous people from different nations. And they often use this word, this English word, country. Um, and it was this concept that seemed really incredible to me, um, but also something that I had no cultural equivalent to understand. It was more than just your home. It was, you know, a concept that imbued a physical connection as well as a spiritual one. Um, you know, it, it was one that um, was infused with history and um, ancestral ties and and stories and culture and, you know, it was something that seemed very holistic and, and that was just not anything that I'd ever experienced before, um, which I think is very common for highly urbanised people. So the book is really um, sort of documentation of how I began to understand what that that really means. And I think by the end of the trip, what I realised is it's not something you need to go out and search for. It's something that you make with the place that you're at, wherever you are. And you can be living in New York or you can be living in Shanghai or you can be living overseas, you can be living in... Um, a place that's not the place of your ancestry. It's about deciding I'm going to connect to the place that I'm at. I'm going to value it and cherish it. I'm going to learn about its history, learn about its culture. I'm going to be a custodian of the place that I'm in. And you're absolutely right. When I came back, I decided I would come back and I would give back to my community. So I, I got involved with lots of community work in my area, um, the environmental work very locally in my, in my area. And I've started to learn more about the Indigenous culture of the area which I'm in, which is um, Darug and Eora country and sort of, I'm sort of on the border of Garingai country as well. I've started to um, get to know some of the Indigenous people who live in my area and which is, you know, for some Sydney-siders who live in the suburbs like I am, that might seem like a very strange concept. But that's what country means. It means um, feeling a sense of service and responsibility and belonging and love and affection for the very lands upon which you're living. In connection to that, you mentioned that going home to China was one of the places that really sparked this idea of 
understanding Australia too. And I think one of the examples you use is you're in China being so overwhelmed by all the different languages and dialects and how, you know, in this area, the women wear the pants in their relationships, like all these gorgeous kind of nuances. And there was this moment where you realised, wait, you know, Australia is made up of over 500 nations. Um, In relation to that, is there, on this journey, was there a place where you felt... um, connection to country in a way that was quite strong and overwhelming? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I uh, before I sort of answer that, I just want to give a caveat that, of course, every inch of Australian, um, of the Australian continent has, is the lands of some traditional owners, um, whether it's Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So, you know, I think I think it's always important to remember that even when you're, as I said, in in very um, highly urbanised areas or areas that have been colonised a long time ago. That said, because every area has had a different experience of colonisation, it means that some areas it is more difficult to access these that history and that living culture more than others and different communities have have you know are offering offer different pathways for non non indigenous people or people who are not of that country so just to give a sort of example there's an area um there's a hike called the Lurijari Heritage Trail it happens a few times a year where the um indigenous people of that area the Galarabalu people they actually um have taken on custodianship of that land um, and they, you know, they they invite non-Indigenous people to or, or Indigenous people not of that area, non-Indigenous people but I guess also Indigenous people but people not of that area to come on this hike and experience country with them and that's very generous of them. Um, it's also a very highly contested area. There are many different traditional owners who sort of um, claim a relationship to that area. But it was really for me um, one of the sort of highlights of my trip and and a really critical turning point for me where I spent nine days <laughs> walking with traditional owners, fishing, um, you know, sleeping sleeping on the the sands of in in areas you know camp spots that um the traditional owners had probably camped at for for centuries if not longer um and it's a place where it's yeah i think it's quite accessible trying to understand this very abstract concept i just want to say thank you for clarifying because in your beautiful explanation it kind of highlights the ignorance, like of my my own ignorance, like this idea that because we're in this studio, right, in this big building in Haymarket, that somehow the connection to the land we're on would be somehow less than somewhere else um, that seems, you know, more untouched. So it's really good to be have that highlighted because, of course, this is the problem, right? It's you know, without understanding or having the 
having had the time to try to understand Indigenous culture, we make these assumptions that somehow this land is less spiritual than other land. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that is that is a huge challenge. But why it's important is that we have this loss when we don't understand the place, the continent upon which we're living. Um, I think there's something magical about Australia. I I love our multiculturalism. Um, I love the the story of Australia and the, you know the story of immigrants coming here, you know, fleeing um, sometimes war or persecution or sometimes just coming here to make their dreams come true in ways that what wasn't possible um, from from their motherlands. But I think to be here on this continent, generation after generation. And never truly embrace this home, place as your home. To always sort of be um, recalling or looking back to your to the, your mother country, the ties to Britain, or um, you know your ties to China or India or Lebanon or wherever it is, they can be meaningful. But we also have to undergo this process where we move on and we accept we're here. This is our home. These. The animals that live here, the plants that are here, the 60,000-year history and living cultures that were here, this is we need to now have a relationship to that and connect to that and think to ourselves, where is our place in that sort of incredible story and richness of, of culture? And, you know, I think it's, um, it's something, it's, it's a slow process, but we, we need to get on board. <laughs> I think that reflects even my own experience of looking outwards. Like, don't you think as often as um, non-Indigenous Australians maybe, I can only speak for my own experience. So, you know, we grow up and we read about all these other places and we kind of think that things are more exciting elsewhere. And I always thought, I want to go to New York and I want to do these things. And gosh, that was fabulous. But there is this, whether it's getting older and wanting to understand yourself, your culture, your history, this turning back and looking into what it means to be Australian has become really important to me. And then I'm faced with the utter gulf of ignorance and lack of knowledge as a 38-year-old Australian woman, and it's I'm ashamed of it but it's not too late. No, it's definitely not too late. And I think it's not too late as Australians. It's not too late, not only as individuals, but, you know, as non-Indigenous Australians who've been on this continent since 1788. That's how I see things. I, I, you know, I try to always bring it back a little bit, get some perspective and remember that I'm just one uh, little bit of a, of a story a very complex and rich story, which where, where do we want this to go? You know, where do we want our nation to go? Where do we want the next generation to go? How can I give back so that I set the scene and I, I make sure that the next generation um, is heading the right direction? Now that you're a teacher, mm. can you talk about how maybe your experience of growing up um, has influenced how you teach 
and how what you want these kids and young people to know? Yeah, um, I had this forum in my local area recently about reconciliation and, how, you know, just a community discussion about what that meant in these suburban areas of Sydney. Um, and I had invited a high school student from um, a private school in the area, you know, to take part. You know, she's like 17 years old and she said she still could recognise that same experience that I'd written about in my book, even though there was, you know, um, a 20-year gap between us. Um, and she's like, oh, you know, the only way that you can, the only way you can really learn properly about Indigenous Australia is if maybe you decide, you know, to do Aboriginal studies. And I said to her, look, we didn't have Aboriginal <laughs> studies when I, uh, you know, during my time, um, or at least I don't recall, I don't, I'm pretty sure, I don't think it was on offer um, at my school, at our school. So yeah, I, I do think progress has been made, but there the gaps remain. And that's, as I've said, that's fine because we're on a journey and, and yeah, things will get better. You know, for me, this trip that I did six months, um, to take six months out of my life, especially uh, when everyone else I know is, um, you know, busy trying to pay their mortgage and raising kids and and getting on with adulthood. So, you know, I I sort of realised what a privilege it was to opt out of that um, more conventional life and, and just dedicate it to, um, you know, going on the road and thinking big thoughts and meeting all kinds of people and learning about our history and experiencing our landscape. That's just something that not everyone is ever going to have the opportunity to do or necessarily feel that they want to do it or that they're necessarily comfortable doing it. So that's the beauty, I guess, of literature and um, pop culture is being able to take those experiences and and let it become other people's understanding of, of our country as well. And in my experience as a I'm, I teach Australian studies at, um, at you know at a tertiary level in Western Sydney. Um, a lot of my students come in and they are highly engaged with the material. They find it absolutely fascinating. They their the attendance is fantastic, and they at the end of the course they say, "I, I thought this was going to be really boring. I, I thought <laughs> you know, um, having done these subjects in high school, I thought it was going to be not at all interesting, but." I think that I help find this other side of Australia that doesn't usually get told, but that's really relevant to my young students, many of whom come from um, non-English speaking backgrounds. They might be, most of them are born in Australia, but they are of Chilean or Lebanese or, you know, Iraqi or um Vietnamese or, uh, you know, the list goes on. It's it's incredible how diverse my classroom is. And I show them how Australia has been multicultural for so long in terms of the colonial story of Australia. Australia has been multicultural longer than it has not. And it was only the white Australia by design, by political design, for only about 60 years out of the 250 or 200 or so. I think the first Chinese immigrant came to Australia only 30 years after the first fleet. 
So I think by its at its very core, multi Australia is the project Australia, as I call it, is multicultural. So anyway, that's getting off track a little bit. But that's I just wanted to why show, we have to yeah, rewrite the history. Yes, and in a exactly. sense, your book and your journalism and the teaching is rewriting the history because I hadn't known um, that Darwin and Broome, for example, are some of the most multicultural cities in Australia and Alice Springs. Um, and I think, isn't there a statistic about Darwin that it was, for a period, it was four to one um, Chinese, Chinese to, European. to European. And you think, how incredible. Like, I know. why didn't I learn about this cultural kind of organism happening in history classes or it makes me want to go there, Yeah, you know, right away. I, I agree. And I think um, it was really incredible to me to see how much I realised my understanding of Australia had been from a very specific cultural bias. And as a Chinese Australian, part of what I, what I must do is reclaim our self reclaim our history and take all these stories that had been buried, marginalised and bring them up to the surface again um, and and let them take, you know, centre stage as they deserve because they weren't a marginal bit of Australian, the Australian story. They were central. It was like, it was central. And the fact that Chinese Australians played such a central role in the foundational period of colonial Australia forces me to ask some very difficult questions about our role in colonialism. So if we don't if we don't face that history squarely and we don't both take credit and take responsibility for what happened, we don't actually understand ourselves. We're still, you know, coming out of that period from the white Australia policy and so naturally more and more people of my generation who are, um, you know, of Asian background or so on and so on, you know, we're coming of age. We're in our 30s or 40s now. Um, Our parents were immigrants. They they were just trying to get by. They they didn't have time to have big thoughts about colonialism or history like my generation do. But we are now, you know, we are now part of the social fabric. We are entering positions of influence and power. And so, I'm not at all ashamed or or, or um, I don't apologise for the fact that I am going to use that power and influence to restore, you know, my people's role in this country. In the book, you talk about coming across a, a, a photograph that was very powerful as an image for you. And it was powerful reading about it because it was an image of a segregated cinema. Yeah. And the point, one of the points you made, which I took on board very much, was that we often think that segregation was a part of the American experience or the South African experience, when, of course, it was very much a part of our own and even until the 1960s. And then another, as a side note, my American friends cannot believe that there was such a thing called the white Australia policy. Like they go, surely it was called something else. <laughs> they were just so blatant about it. <laughs> so it is, and that 
that only finished in the 1970s. And in the book, you talk about your parents coming after that period. I mean, I'm going all over the place here, but let's go back to the kind of original question of coming across this photograph, because it felt that even though we know it and we learn about this, these, you know, our history, sometimes until you see see it, uh, it's not made as real to us as it could be. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I was taught it, to be honest. Like, I don't recall it being something that our history classes actually told us. And it wasn't, it really wasn't, uh, I mean, it's always hard to remember exactly when you started to learn about it, but most definitely when I was working at The Guardian, just in the two years before I went on this trip, I actually went to a cinema um, in Moree, which is in New South Wales, and, yeah, there was a, I I, I was on this um thing called the Freedom Rides, 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. And I I got to see a woman, um, a woman from that area, an Indigenous woman, speak about what it was like to um, be forced into the, the bad section of, of that cinema in Moree. And, um, you know, she was, she was like my parents' age. She was, you know, this is not some, people sort of think colonialism happened 200 years ago and it's over now and um, Aboriginal people should just get over it. But the fact that, you know, she was just my parents' age and she had to, there was a colour bar in her cinema where she wasn't allowed to to sit in those seats. She had to sit in the bad seats. Her her mother wouldn't have been allowed to buy her dress in in the white woman's shop. Um, The RSLs were refusing Aboriginal servicemen and women, um, except in some places they were, uh, uh, you know, begrudgingly allowed them to come in on Anzac Day. Um, these were stories that as I started to learn about, um, yeah, were really shocking to me and, and bit by bit they started to alter my understanding of Australia. And, yeah, that photo um, was yet just another sort of piece of the puzzle for me to actually see physical evidence and when I say that, not just of Indigenous people, but to see the Asian people, um, as I say in the book, um, it, it was quite specific. So there was a middle strip that was for rich white people. There was another section that was for lower class white people. Chinese and Japanese had to sit behind them. And at the very back and at the very front, which is the neck craning seats and, you know, very cold and drafty and uncomfortable wooden benches, Malays and... Um, other sort of dark-skinned South Asian, um, Southeast Asians were put with um, Indigenous people. So it was um, very sort of uh, compelling for me, this this photo, to see just how strict those racial categories were. But as I say in that chapter, in institutions such as the cinema or... Um, or something like the the uh, cemeteries, they they had this orderliness about it. But the reality of it outside was quite different, and that's why Broome had lots of mixed race children because um, those categories would would blur when it came to really living together, and and um, you know there were all kinds of relationships, be they professional or romantic or friendships. Um, and yeah, Broome was this place which was considered 
a sort of doomsday look into the future of Australia by, um, you know, southern states of Australia. They It was brought up in Parliament in the lead-up to enacting um, the legislation of the White Australia policy is, look at this crazy place, all these, all these different races. But everyone's all... <laughs> happily living together. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I mean... mean I think, I don't know Relatively. how happily, but it was working. There were, yeah, there were lots of, it was a dynamic place, a place of industry. It was where the pearling industry was. People, yeah, there was a lot of um, friendship and cooperation. And um, it's really what Australia looks like now, where we, for the most part, uh, that sort of fusion of different cultures and, and cooperation between different kinds of people is really quite a magical part of Australia and we we need to retain that, I think. I'm wondering how connected you were to your phone on this trip and how that changed. I mean, this is the obsession we all have, right? (laughs) How do you switch off, disconnect? We all want to desperately and it seems like going on a six-month trip, you know, part of me would love to do that and throw the phone away and try to do it with a map, but that also seems terrifying as well. I um, I don't know if I would suggest throwing the phone completely away <laughs> because I think it's a good safety tool. And and um, I was always the thing you got to remember is there are yeah I definitely completely reduced my phone use for multiple reasons. There are large sections of Australia which has no phone reception at all. <laughs> I was always running out of battery because I would drive and that's the only time I could charge anything. So if I only drove an hour that day um, or half an hour, then then I, that's the only chance I had to charge my phone. So I didn't, I wasn't using it that much um, for, for that, for the practical reasons that I just didn't have battery and I didn't have phone reception. And I, I think you know, the, my life just before I went on this trip, I was a journalist. And when you're a journalist, you're just online all the time. And half of your very existence seems to be digital. Um, and that was that was very, it became sort of distressing for me. I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that the internet was becoming a really toxic place in in comparison to when I was a teenager and it seemed to be really friendly and lots of communities and a place of discovery. So that detox uh, of six months was incredibly healthy and and very good for me. Uh, As to whether I've retained that is another question. (laughs) I would say it's left some lasting impacts. But, um, yeah, the ability to sort of uh, disconnect while we're in this living our normal lives is is a challenge. <laughs> did you take any books along the road or anything I did specific? take I did take a bunch of books. I took maybe 15 books, but I didn't read as much as I thought I would. What I did do all the time was write. So I had 18 journals that I'd filled by the end of it. Um, especially during the first few months that were a bit more hectic and busy than, and had more people that I had met. Um, it was quite incredible how, how much time it took to try and, you know, uh, document the entire day that I'd had, all the conversations that I had, 
I tried to get it with as much detail as possible. So I have reams and reams of material, most of which I didn't use. So much material. I've never, I've, I'm, I'm a spotty diary keeper. So this was the first time that I so intensively diarized my life, every conversation, every person, every location. And humanity is incredible. Like once you actually put it down on paper, all these strange people and these strange quirks that they have and their strange, this strange, you know, uh, thing called humanity. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I, I think if anyone were to so document their life in such detail, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, it, it starts to, you would find there's so much to work with in terms of being an artist. To end on, what is an ABC? It's an Australian-born Chinese. Um, it's funny. I had no idea that the broader populace had, are not familiar <laughs> with this phrase, and I used it once and um, in a in a, at a party, and um, the woman was like, "Oh, do you work at the ABC?" I'm like, "No, no, no. <laughs> it means Australian-born Chinese." And but if you're an ABC, you would know this term. How do you feel now about being an ABC? I think I have real clarity as to um, what I what I want to do for Australia, and yeah, it is both as an ABC, it's as a non-Indigenous Australian, and it's just as an Australian. Like that concept of being Australian, um, of what citizenship means, but also of what country means and, and belonging to country. These. Um, these concepts have really been clarified to me and that I'm on a lifelong journey of helping shape this country for the better. Um, I want to, you know, pay service to my community and my country and, and play a role in reconciliation, play a role in being a bridge between non-Indigenous Australia and Indigenous Australia, between um, recent immigrant Australia and the rest of the country. I am so proud of the fact that I've written this book, which was so difficult. Such a, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done, um, but it was such a worthwhile experience. And people have told me how much they enjoyed it. So I feel that I want to carry that on, that, that my role as a writer and a communicator is one that's valuable and that I want to continue doing that. Well, thank you so much. And... I mean, we really only touched probably about six touch points of the of this book that has so much in it. So it's just perfect for everyone to have their own discovery of it as they read it. Thanks so much. For Thanks being so here. much for having me on. The big takeaway from speaking to Monica for myself was how much I want to. Uh, interrogate Australian history as it relates to my understanding of Indigenous culture and belonging. Uh, I think lots of Australians can relate to that and wherever you are it's such a good idea to try and understand where you're from. I've been looking outwards for so long and it's really good to kind of reflect in and I hope you're encouraged to do the same. If anything on the podcast struck a chord with you or if you have suggestions, please get in touch with us at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.